Hey everyone, and welcome yet again to the Warrior Monk Podcast. I am your host, Lance, and for the next several episodes of this podcast, we're going to be focusing on a theme. I've decided we're kind of going to go into a segment with uh, some specialized guests, all with a very similar uh, kind of function and, and purpose to these podcasts, and they're going to be focusing around psychology, mental health, and neuroscience, all things related to the brain. And on this episode of the podcast, I have Dr. Justin Smith. Justin's busy schedule of working in this field of neuroscience. He has a PhD in the subject. And in working in kind of data analysis, he has a side project that he works on called Tactical Neuroscience. Now, Tactical Neuroscience's intent is to help people who work in the tactical, first responder, law enforcement communities to better make decisions under high stress or in high stress environments, which he uses a neuroscientist approach to help get results for such things. So Justin was kind enough to give me his time. Uh, we had a great conversation. He's a character of a guy. He tells some great stories and some some great kind of instances of where these kind of applications of, of neuroscience and psychology kind of meet when it comes to being able to react to the unknown or the uh, unexpected that happens in life. So guys, if you haven't already, please go check out the Warrior Monk podcast on Instagram, on Facebook. Please give it a like and a follow. If you're subscribing through one of the platforms that allows you to leave reviews, such as Apple, please leave a review for me on there. And of course, most importantly, I love person to person sharing. So if you know someone who's a warrior monk, someone who would respect a warrior monk's mindset and mentality, go ahead and send them a link to this podcast and share with them as well so they can enjoy the content. All right, without further ado, here we go. Here's Dr. Justin Smith of Tactical Neuroscience. All right, well, today on the Warrior Monk Podcast, I have Dr. Justin Smith from Tactical Neuroscience. I'm pretty excited because he's starting off this little segment I'm doing with the Warrior Monk Podcast focused on neuroscience, on a little bit of biohacking, on tactical decision-making and stress response, as well as uh, psychology. And so uh, he's a, been generous enough to offer me his time and come on the Warrior Monk podcast. So uh, thank you so much for making the time to uh, talk to me today, Justin. I appreciate you joining me here on the Warrior Monk podcast. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, for my guests, will you give yourself a little bit of an uh, introduction and uh, background as far as uh, who you are and, and what uh, you've kind of stepped into the realm here with tactical neuroscience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Justin Smith. I think we already covered that part, so we can cross that line off. Uh, my my background is I had the opportunity to grow up in Alaska, and I was able to be exposed to adventure and decision-making under extreme circumstances fairly early in life. And then for my bachelor's and master's, I was interested in kind of how humans function. So I studied psychology for that. And then I was able to jump into a PhD neuroscience program. And where the overlap lies between kind of the tactical community and neuroscience for me is my youngest brother is a police officer. And so right away when I was kind of designing my experiments, I thought, how can I design these in such a way where I have outcomes and discoveries that are applicable to him and his job and also the military community um, in terms of, you know, making decisions under extreme stress. And when I say extreme stress, I mean bullets going both ways Uh, and kind of how are the foundational systems organized in terms of the stress response and also how do we optimize decision-making under extreme stress before, during, and after event? Yeah, that's awesome. And so you've kind of we're in the academic world of kind of after graduating, is it something you stepped into right away or were you working in the field for a while and decided to kind of divert off in this direction? 
Yeah, so it was it, it was kind of the, one of those fun things where it was always in the back of my mind, and then I finally one day was talking to a mentor, and his basic comment was, "You need to just quit messing around and start this as a business and tell people you're out there." And I thought, "Oh, is it that easy?" And it's you know it's not that easy, but it's <laughs> starting down the path of saying, "I'm here as a resource for you," and kind of from there it's grown uh, to kind of where we are today, which is fantastic, and I get to interact with a lot of different groups, uh, very diverse, kind of all across the spectrum, anywhere from military law enforcement to large businesses and you know, everywhere in between, which is pretty fun. Yeah. And you said, you know, having family uh, in law enforcement, obviously that was probably a, a key kind of decision-making point for like, Hey, what, what could I do to help him stay safe on the streets? Or, you know, how can my skill set help him? Is there anything else that kind of turned you down that path of studying neuroscience as far as it relates to the tactical or the, the first responder community? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's one of those where I, I my, Many, many, a few family members are in law enforcement. Uh, family members I've married into a, a heavy military family. So my brother-in-law is active right now, um, and so it was just kind of a really, it was something I think about often, and kind of being able to marry the two together in terms of how do we take this basic science research that usually lives in academic papers for, I don't know, five, ten, fifteen, sometimes twenty years, to where it actually gets out to application. How do I bridge that gap so that you know the discoveries that I made are able to come into practice? For individuals that can use them in a much more expedient manner than somebody 15 or 10 years from now saying, Hey, there's, here's a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the, that was kind of the, the catalyst for me. And so is the goal of tactical neuroscience is kind of, if I'm understanding correctly and, and, and divert me here, if I'm, I'm not getting it all the way, but is basically like, uh, Coaching, enabling through knowledge, the ability to best make decisions under that high stress uh, condition, right? When you're going into that fight or, fight or flight freeze mode, is that kind of the idea? Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it's, I would say it's many parts, but the two main prongs would be understanding the fundamentals of how that process works mm-hmm. and exposing it through different types of training. So a lot of times we get called to help uh, augment or a review or help to build training programs for individuals that are kind of going into those types of training you know, scenarios. Um, and then also the idea of how do you enhance learning and memory in terms of using foundational neuroscience principles to make sure that the skills and knowledge that you're acquiring in these classes or courses or uh, whatever exposure you have to it, how do you learn those so you can best apply them later? And what are some of the tips and tricks along with uh, kind of the idea of it, neurohacking is a bit of a loaded word, but that's okay. Uh, yeah. The neurohacking associated with that, right, is how do you how do you optimize performance for learning as well as uh, performance, which is good. That's awesome. I'm definitely want to circle around around to that one because I'm, I'm sure. always I'm always in that mindset with being a strength conditioning coach. Like, how do we yeah. get better, faster, stronger, smarter type thing? But uh, when, you, when I first got an introduction with you, we had a short talk, and you were telling me uh, a kayaking story that you kind of witnessed that was kind of like a eureka moment for you. Can you can you kind of retell that story a bit for my audience because that's a really good one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we were talking about kind of that situational awareness, like the context of what, what the surroundings that you're in right. and recognizing those surroundings. And so uh, the story basically is uh, I live in a city where we have a river that goes through town and people can rent rafts and kayaks and go rafting down this river. And it's it's very well maintained. It, it gets to very low levels and they kind of, they not dredge it out, but they take out fallen trees and they're major pitfalls. And then the you know the water level comes up in the springtime through summer and into early fall, and you can rent the rafts and go down the river. It's very relaxing, but at the same time, it's still a moving body of water, right? Mm-hmm. So appropriate risks should be applied or understood when you're doing that. 
And so the basics of the story were my son and I were fishing and we're sitting on the side of the river, having a great morning together. And all of a sudden, you know, upriver from us about maybe a hundred yards or so, I see a boat uh, raft come around the corner and it just tips over and goes right into the bank. It's caught on a tree that has fallen in the water. There's a little bit of white water associated there. And uh, the next thing I know, there were some people right behind it in kayaks. They grabbed the life jackets, the people that were in the boat. So it was, as I learned, kind of as the situation unfolded, uh, it was two adults, the mom and dad, and then the kid. And the kid had his life jacket on. Mom and dad did not have their life jackets mm -hmm. on. So the kayakers grab mom and dad's life jacket. Dad gets out of the boat. And it's about knee to waist deep water, but it's moving. It's you know white water. So he can stand up. And the kid floats down a little bit. And one of the kayakers grabs the kid and gets him to shore. And then the dad's able to make it to shore. And the mom is kind of in a difficult spot in terms of uh, she's uh, not in anywhere near the shape physically to be able to pull herself off of and out of the water. Right. And so this is all kind of unfolding fairly quickly. And I'm watching the, the situation and I'm telling my son, okay, it's time for us to pack up our fishing poles now. We have to leave. He's like, why? I was like, well, there's kind of a, potentially an emergency happening. And I don't want it to be here, you know, or, or, be around this if I have to get involved. My number one priority is your safety and my safety sure. before this family's safety. Um, but at the same time, people stopped to help, which is good. But what was powerful for me, I think the aha moment that, that we were discussing is the, the wife, the mom, she was unable to extract herself from the river to the bank and get out of the, it was just, I, I would call this a regular river bank, right? It's, you know, a little bit of an overhang, maybe mm -hmm. two feet or so. And you, there's branches you can hang on to to pull yourself up and out of. And they, they just made this series of poor decisions in terms of let's rent a raft on a river we've probably never gone down before or even looked at. So they just assumed it was super easy. And the mom and dad weren't wearing their life jackets. And like clearly we're not boaters because they didn't have any of the other stuff squared away either. And then all you have to do, I've since done the, done the float, all you have to do is paddle two or three times and you skip that, you know, going into the rocks and into the bank section by that down, down tree. Uh, they didn't do that. They were just probably weren't paying attention at all. And all of a sudden it went from a fun day in the river to, the rafts, you know, flipped upside down and stuck on the log. Kids down the river, people, you know, strangers, essentially good Samaritans are helping them out, the father and son. And then finally, I was getting ready to say, okay, follow me, son. We're going to go up and help this woman out of the water because she's still, she's still standing in moving water and can't get out. Uh, and they were finally able to, one of the, one of the people in the kayaks stopped, actually jumped in the water and they pushed her up and out of it. But it was this moment of like, we think about things in, from my perspective of just going about daily life when you don't recognize that there's inherent risk everywhere and you have to prepare yourself for even that inherent risk of just leaving your front door. Right. And it, it, it was, again, kind of the aha for me was, you know, make sure you're keeping a situation awareness around you of what's happening. And as you increase, as I like to say, the adventure, you increase the risk. And so understanding where you are kind of on that spectrum uh, is really important. And how do you prepare yourself before, during, and after to have most, I would say the most safe and most fun experience, um, knowing that certain things are far more inherently risky than others. Yeah. And there's a, a whole lot that, that goes on there when you, when you tell that story that I, I think about, I mean, one, one being like, you know, they weren't necessarily prepared for the potential hazards of, of the situation. So they probably should have done more as far as their, and it's easy to armchair quarterback a, a situation like sure. that, but I mean, it, it does make you think like, well, what, what could I have done different or what would I do? Could I have done different if I was in that situation? So doing kind of their, you know, in the military, we say mission planning, right? If you're going to go do an operation, even mm -hmm. in even in training, we, you know, we make sure, you know, uh, operational risk management and things are in place and who's in charge of the medical equipment and what are we going to do if someone gets hurt and 
blah, blah, blah. Uh, goes, you know, the list goes on. You can almost, you can plan it to, an, to the point where you almost never even get out the door because you're, because you're planning so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then like the environmental conditions with something like that, that happens, right? Like not, you, you've said it, not the most hazardous type of situation, but these compounding factors of, you know, the boats tipped over. Now everyone's dunked in the water. Certain people aren't wearing life vests. I'm sure, you know, for anybody that's a parent, the first thing they're going to think of is I need to help my child, but then you don't want to become a victim yourself, right? If you're struggling in the water, you don't want to drown. So now you're trying to figure out how to preserve your life, how to help your, help your kid or your loved ones in the water. And then, you know, at the same time, you know, basically figure out how not to make the situation worse. The water, the water is moving so that it's potentially being close together. You could be separated like in a matter of a couple seconds, depending on, on with water speed. So it's like one of those things where like, okay, the accident does happen. Maybe you didn't plan accordingly. And it's like, you have to make decisions very, very quick to avoid the situation becoming much, much worse. Very, 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 very fast. So that's one the thing I really liked about the story is like, I saw it as a perfect example, or it's like such an innocent thing, you know, weekend out with a family and in, in an instant, it went from a potentially hazardous situation, uh, which fortunately, you know, some people were there to aid and, and uh, no one was seriously hurt or, or killed or anything, but it does make you think like, all right, what's, what, what, what could, what I do different? What could have been different? What could they have done different? And uh, next time we go kayaking, let's, uh, <laughs> let's avoid this, this route, maybe pick a different, uh, an easier place, make sure we're wearing our life jackets. If we're not the, the most secure people in the water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I, I, it's one of those, I, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, as I retell the story, I, I, I'm kind of remembering we were fishing a really deep hole in the river. And so had they had their life jackets on, it would have been, incredibly easy to just pick your feet up float down you know the 75 yards or so to where we were and the water is near standstill and literally right. walk out the rocks right but you know they were having such an overwhelming stress response that you know the decision making ability was very diminished is yeah. what i would argue um so yeah it was a good ending i didn't see how, like what they did afterwards everybody got out of the water and they they brought the raft down out of the water so that was good too yeah so. and and water is such a thing too I, I worked as a lifeguard as as a kid and stuff and of course doing certain military training, getting the water involved. It's like the great equalizer. I mean, people, people, if they've had any kind of negative experience with the water or they just don't, are not comfortable in the water, that panic response will set in like immediately. Yeah. And it just, it's, you know, once the air starts getting taken away and it's all downhill from there. So <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm like, it's exactly right. It's yeah, 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 totally is. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, in this whole thing, right. So this, you know, high stress situation happens, uh, you know, are there ways that you can make high stress decision-making processes better and faster? Like, how would you, you know, recommend that people start to kind of this process of like, oh, you know, it's the proverbial human excrement has hit the oscillator. Yeah. How do I, how do I take that quick second to, to get myself in check so that I'm making good decisions? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the part where, you know, it, again, I'll talk about things at a very high level, knowing that, you know, there's uh, a lot of levels of depth. We just won't be able to get to unless we do like a semester long course. But right. the, the big thing is, is as you, as you just described earlier, mission planning, understanding what is it mm -hmm. you're going to be doing, taking that second to pause and say, here's what we're doing. This is how long we think it's going to take. And then the, the next second in my mind is, do we have the appropriate stuff like the gear we need to do this? And then do we all know how to use the gear appropriately? I can't tell you how many times we've seen some with the life jacket on. It seems like it'd be easy to do but a very ill-fitting life jacket for a water scenario, it doesn't do you much good, right? I think right. that's the other 
The other part of it is, do you know how to use the gear that you're going to be maybe called upon to use? And then the contingency planning of going through that, what happens if, the, like just quick scenario walkthroughs before you get in the water. Um, my friends give me a hard time, although I'll, I do get invited on some fun adventures because I do play this role of, hey, let's just talk to what we're going to do real quick. And like, oh, you're such a safety freak. I'm like, you're dang right I am. Because yeah. <laughs> we're doing fun activities where uh, if things go south, you know, it's life or, life or death fairly right. quickly. And so it's much better to be at least aware of the risk that you're going into. But from the, from the neuroscience side, what I think is really fun is it, it doesn't have to be like to be able to apply these techniques. It doesn't take you know, a, a massive amount of training. It's just the idea of understanding what is it you're going to be doing? What is it you think you might be able to, what, what is it you think you might encounter as you go into that? And then training associated with that, right? So it, it sounds really easy to say, but it's, it's go and do the appropriate training. And then while you're doing the training, use it as a learning experience for yourself. I think often we get caught, I, I, I've been through some seminars where I've had this experience myself, where I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going through the motions right now. When in reality, I should have been like, okay, what's the one nugget? I've done this same thing four times already, but what's the one nugget of I can get better at for me that I haven't practiced on or that I haven't learned previously? And, and that's something where, you know, applying yourself to training that you're going into uh, sounds super easy to do, but being present and being able to, you know, again, if it's something you've done before, find out, make it more challenging for yourself, right? I think it's meeting those minimum bars is always not easy to do, but you can do it, but it's sure. Only you know the places that you need to improve upon the most. And mm -hmm. I think that's also something as human beings is we, uh, just based on our evolution, are inherently fairly lazy, which is, you know, survival technique number one is don't expend, as, don't expend more energy than necessary. Right. But at the same time, knowing what your future may hold, um, that's where I argue, you know, go into it, get out of it what you want to get out of it. And even if it's, an, <laughs> this experience, well, even if it's not a great course, you could still do things to make it challenging for yourself. Um, and I think that's something, again, it sounds very easy, but going in with that open mind of what can I learn from this, even though you may have done it before, or taking it seriously, I think is another way to say it uh, from the training side. And then we, I think, again, we talked about this in our, our previous conversation, but ramping it up to an appropriate level that's appropriate for you, right? And so we talked about oxygen deprivation. The water is a great way to do that, to figure out where your panic response is and understand how does your body respond during stress, mm -hmm. right? The military gives you plenty of opportunities to do all sorts of different activities and they make them stressful so that you then realize this sucks. And then what, but the real reason I, I like to kind of place it into is why is this hard? Why is it, why, why is this difficult? What is your body doing when it's difficult, right? And so uh, recognizing those things and learning techniques that are all usually individual, individualized of, okay, how do you make it better? So I'll use myself as an example. I love swimming. I'm horrible at treading water. I just don't have a very good buoyancy. And so what I like to do for a swimming exercise is go and try and tread water for as many intervals as I can up to like 15 minutes. And so I'll start. I'm great. I could do like three or four minutes, no problem. And then I just get really fatigued. And then I kind of hold the, hold the edge for a second. And I come back. But I know once I get to that fatigue level, there's a spot where I can get into that uncomfortable zone right. and push myself. And then recognizing, okay, I'm getting to where I might start to cramp up and or you know, I'm, my nose is going below the water a little more than should I need to take a break and relax. Uh, but, but learning where those thresholds are for you as an individual, I think that's one of the things that training offers us that we don't always um, appreciate, I think is the way to think about it. And that's also the other part when, you know, the more elite or select groups you get into, you find yourself surrounded by other individuals that are also fairly exceptional. And the, 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 the normal of what you're doing seems normal, but in reality, it's probably not because you took some off the street and said, okay, we're going to go to this today. They'd be like, what are you talking about? I, I can't jump out of an airplane. You're like, yeah, it's totally normal. Let's just go do it. 
right. have these you know, processes in place. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the, that's again, one of those ideas of kind of checking yourself in terms of how are you performing in a certain situation? What are the things you could be doing better? And the other thing is your mentors and your coaches and your trainers, they're there to help you. They want to help you. They want to see you succeed. I think that's the thing where, unless you're going through, you know, some, a couple of selections that are, you know, they're getting rid of everybody, but <laughs> the most part, if it's a training that you're there because they want to see you succeed. Right. And so that's part of it too, is at the end of the day, we're all human and you can ask them, you know, like, Hey, I think I did okay. But what, what tips or tricks do you have for me that, you know, that, that you noticed and yeah, feedback. Yeah. Get that feedback in a, in a non-confrontational way. I think that's right. helpful, right? You, you know, if you botched the exercise, like that's pretty clear, but if you pass, you perform, you're like, Hey, I, you know, is there anything you noticed in my technique or, or what I was doing that I could improve upon in this portion that I thought was hard? Mm-hmm. And it might just be like, no, that part's hard for you. That's just how it is. Uh, or it might be like, oh yeah, one of the tricks that I've learned is X, Y, or Z. Um, so I think that's also having that level of communication is helpful as well. Yeah. And something that's I've been listening to a lot recently uh, with uh, Dr. Huberman's had a, a couple conversations with his podcast and uh, of course, me trying to become more and more of a, a neuroscience nerd. I've been listening to a lot of folks that are in your career field. He's one of them. But uh, the whole kind of like, I guess, you know, this comfort comfort state that we're all, most of us, and I say most of us, you know, meaning first world, you know, American yeah. people were like, you know, we're in constantly in this uh, excess of, of dopamine kind of mindset where like comfort is uh, getting outside of it. Yeah. And getting outside of it seems like almost like bizarrely al- alarming, yeah. but if you kind of embrace those like little moments of the suck, whether it's, you know, you spend an extra five minutes on the treadmill or you're going to knock out one more set on the bench press or, you know, the kind of thing, it's kind of starts to set new neural pathways to kind of push yourself and kind of set that almost as a new pattern for your life too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of it's setting that new contextual norm for yourself right and right uh, you know we are all physiological i'm using my hands now in terms of you've got a spectrum from kind of left to right we're all physiologically you know systems and the comfort gets you to sit right in the middle where you're not right. pushed too much one way or the other and that feels really good uh, in in swedish they have a word called logum and logum is best is what they say and that means it's not too hot it's not too cold right you're not right. too hungry you're the not too locks there yeah <laughs> right it is it totally is and that's where again as human beings we run and are optimal when we sit more or less in an area. The problem with that, though, is it's extremely boring. Like, right. it totally is boring. And I think that's the best way to describe it. It's just really boring to be there, right? If you're, if yeah. you're not ever pushing yourself, uh, you're not ever going outside those boundaries, life is very, very mundane. And so one of the ways to think about it is expand kind of along that physiological pathway or the, the uh, spectrum is to find out where your limits are, right? right? I think that's something where I noticed with the elite individuals, you know, I won't say we, but they push themselves right to the edge. And then, you know, where your edges are, right? I think that's, that's a part of the learning process. Um, and yeah, Huberman does a great job of kind of describing it in, uh, I, th- I think somewhat similar terms, but the, the ability to recognize, okay, this is hard. I'm feeling discomfort. And then as an athlete, the athletes are trained very quickly to learn, is it pain or is it discomfort? Because those are right. two different things, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's pain, stop. Like you're right. tearing your, you're destroying your body. Don't do that. If it's discomfort, then the next question is how much can you take? AKA, where's your personal? And I think what we find is having gone through some, uh, you know, being an athlete earlier in life, you can deal with a ton of discomfort. 
And as long as for me, as long as I was applying a similar or more amount of discomfort to my opponent, I was happy. Sure. <laughs> I was like I can live in fairly extreme discomfort as long as I know you're going through it with me and or I'm, <laughs> I'm applying more to you uh, and willing to take that right up to the essential that pain threshold. Right. Um, that's something where I think recognizing those boundaries, again, it goes back to the idea of kind of the self-assessment, you know, where are you and how are you doing? Um, it sounds so easy, but in these moments of extreme stress or moments of stress, it's really hard to do. And I have a quick story I could tell um, where, where this is applicable. So uh, I was and her brother and they had a uh, hostage situation in his area. And so he was called and he was one of the first uh, police officers on the scene. So he sets up this perimeter and uh, all of a sudden the guy comes out on his front step on his front doorstep and he has a rifle, but it's not pointed at anybody. And so he goes, I'm out. I've got my you know service rifle out with me. And I've got the guy and the guy kept coming in and out of his house. Right. And so right. the SWAT team's on the way. And he's like, I'm, I'm there watching the front door and then the windows to make sure I can see where this guy is making radio calls. And he's posted up, he's got some good cover. So he's posted up behind like a, a barrier, a wall or like a giant pillar or something that was solid. And he's like, so I didn't feel like I was exposed. I was, I was in a good place. And he goes, I'm, I'm a few minutes into this. And he realizes he's got it just a death grip on his rifle. And he's like, I'm here for the long haul. I got to relax. And it was this moment where I went, yes. And he goes, it wasn't because of you. <laughs> I, said, I said, you may say that, but I'm pretty sure I've said this to you before is take a second to see how you're doing. Right. Right. And so when you're in this right. extreme stress situation where literally the person that's across the way is threatening either their life or somebody else's life, potentially, or they're going down that path. And he, he had them in his sights. And he's like, he was just, he took a moment to recognize like, wait, I'm over gripping the heck out of my rifle right now. I can relax for a second. I, I don't have to have a death grip. I can, mm-hmm. I can have it so I still have a solid grip on it, but I'm not just squeezing it so his knuckles are turning white. Um, and then he said the other part was he, he had knee surgery recently. He's like, I was on my wrong knee. <laughs> so oh. it's like I just, he goes, I, I had space to move, so I got my knee comfortable as well. I was like, that's good. Right. And those are things where, again, they're subtle. They happen in the moment during a stress situation, but taking that moment to realize, because his performance would have decreased considerably had he had to take a shot if his hands were all fatigued out and his body was all tensed up, right? I think that's something where, uh, again, easy to say from my perspective, but when you're in the moment, uh, it's practicing that self-assessment can be really difficult unless you kind of think about it or do it ahead of time. Yeah. Try it in there. I know for, for me and the experience I've had working with people is, is, you know, the, the breath being that one thing that really can bridge the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah. uh, Cause you know, we have conscious control over it. Uh, and people, you know, tend to go into panic breathing or, you know, they, and it's not something you normally think about, right? You don't yeah, think about yeah. I'm, I'm breathing in and out, but just being able to take that second to check in with yourself, like, like that guy mm-hmm. was doing, like, oh, I'm death gripping my gun. You know, even if it's just taking one breath, uh, you know, a tactical pause and just, you know, a deep inhalation and a slow exhale, yep. you know, even if that's just bringing down the heart rate a little bit, bringing down the blood pressure a little bit to come out of that kind of you know, that circle, the, 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 the yeah. you know, the, the little black edges of the vision coming in, kind of yep. removing that ocular occlusion a little bit yep. and being able to check out, all right, what's really going on. Am I making the right decision right now for, for me and working in, I like working with people too, especially on that, um, in, in the gym, because you can actually start to add some stuff into your routine that can actually make you better at, at basically understanding where your, your edge of your comfort zone is with your breathing. And I like to add, throw in a uh, hypercapnic work too, and add some CO2 stress to that. Yeah, You got a little more CO2 stress. You're probably going to be a little bit better able to handle stress in general. It's kind of that what I'm, I'm learning more and more. 
Yep, absolutely. And I would say that you're, you're very much along the pathway in my mind of uh, exposure to stress and exposing yourself mm-hmm. to that idea of stress. And it's, it's when you're out of the water, it's a little bit more safe, you, clearly, right. than holding your breath underwater. But putting in those kind of breathwork exercises is foundational, right? And they, what I like to say as well is the brain runs on two things, more or less, oxygen and glucose. Mm-hmm. And if you deprive it of either of those things, it doesn't work very well, right? right. And so if you get too much, if you're hyperventilating, you're too much, you've saturated that physiological system beyond its point of capacity, that's not good. You get really lightheaded and you know you feel very odd. And the same thing too, where you get the ocular occlusion because you're holding your breath, which is one of our natural responses to stress is to hold your breath, figure out the situation, and then either freeze, flight, or you know, flight. But uh, practicing that breathing, what's a fun study? I don't remember the authors of it, but basically they looked at test takers and they measured respirations per minute, right? And what they found was, uh, higher performing test takers, just like a written exam, had uh, far more rhythmic breathing during the exam and also had a, a relatively stable breath per minute, right. like the 12 to 14 or whatever it is, right? Uh, and individuals who performed poorly in the test had variable respiration rate. And they're also like, some points would get down like two breaths a minute. So on a super right. hard problem, what they do is they're like, <gasps> and they're, they feel like they're thinking really hard, but they're not breathing. Right. And it's kind of this self-fulfilling circular you know, motion you get into where then that makes you more nervous. It makes you more stressed. Right, and then right. you're, you're, you're positively looping that system in not a good way. And I say positive meaning it's a feed forward system. Uh, and so again, breath work is one of those where it sounds very easy, but it's so powerful to do. Uh, again, I cheated. And because I know we work on glucose and oxygen. And one of the things I do before I do you know, something like this is I make sure I have enough sugar in my body. So I had a sure. small sugar juice, right? To dump as much right. glucose or sucrose, fructose in my body as possible so that I'm ready to be alert and able to perform, AKA tell fun stories and have a good conversation. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you know, there's yeah. other, other stuff, uh, other stuff you can, you can do too. I mean, like every, every I mean, the p- problem I see with people all the time is like pre-workout, like I need to get am- amped up for the gym and it's like, okay, but you know, is, that's not something the body is designed to, to run. It's <laughs> like 400 milligrams of caffeine. Like yeah. let's, let's focus on good quality nutrition and hydration first. Correct. A little, a little bit of caffeine is great, but <laughs> Yeah, a caffeine is a, a absolutely can be a performance optimizer within certain certain small or compared to 400 milligrams, uh, you know, smaller doses. You're also you're you're killing it in terms of you're nailing the the two things you can do ahead of time, right? Is proper nutrition, mm-hmm. meaning are you eating a balanced diet and balanced diet for what you're going to be doing is very important, right? So if it's, you know you can kind of tailor it to if you're an endurance athlete or you have you know big lifts to do, you can kind of change and adjust your carbohydrates, proteins, that kind of stuff. But the other thing is voluntary exercise. And I say this hopefully often because it sounds super easy to do, but that idea of making exercise voluntary and going and doing it so that you break a sweat a number of times per week, it enhances your stress response to make sure your system is functioning properly. It's, a, it's incredible. And it also works very, it also works very powerfully as in, in neuroscience, we have anxiogenic, which means you get something more, more nervous. It's not where you want to be or anxiolytic. So it's something that works to calm down your anxiety or, you know, decrease your amygdala response or the anxiety that you're experiencing. We'll talk about the amygdala in a second, but exercise is this such a powerful tool. Uh, and actually one of my experiments is pretty amazing and, and fun in terms of, I was able to expose these animals to very stressful experience. And I gave part of the group, one of the groups uh, access to a free running wheel. So this is in mice and they could mm-hmm. run as much as they wanted. And what we showed was the animals that had this essentially a normal overwhelming stress response, they were able to come back down. They weren't down to baseline at yet, but they were able to decrease significantly their stress response to this really horrible situation just by having free access to running wheel and just running it off. 
And anecdotally, I talk to my friends who have been deployed before and they say, yeah, we go on these crazy patrols. We come back, we hit the gym for an hour or two. Right. And like, you're exhausted, but all at the same time, it's just, it's how I was able to sleep. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of those natural ways. I say natural. It's one of those evolutionarily designed ways that we're supposed to give species. We're not supposed to sit in chairs on Zoom calls 10 hours a day, right? I mean, no, we're not, but we're doing it. But some of us are. Yeah, yeah. I'm pointing the finger at myself right now. But I think getting it in and making sure it's a, a priority in terms of the other thing I like to say is it could be fun. You don't yeah. have to go out and do the exercise you hate. Like that sucks. That's not yeah. voluntary. Go out. So find the things that you think are fun, right? I know what mine are. Mountain biking, swimming, motorcycling. I hate jogging and running. So I just don't do that very much by trying to do other things that are that are similar to get my cardiovascular workout in mm -hmm. uh, and, and make it so it's something that you enjoy doing and it's just becomes a fun part of life and it should be fun. Not, you know, I'm going to go out and set my new mile time every week. Like that sounds right. horrible to me. <laughs> and not and some people totally are driven to do that. Uh, I, mean, exactly. I, was, I was more of that guy when I was younger, but I've, and now that I'm old now, but like, as I left my twenties and got, went into my thirties, I was realizing more and more that the consistency was so much more important than in my fitness than the intensity all the time. Right. Yep. Cause yep. you're constantly going through this, this stage is just want to, I just want to make gains and make gains. But if you're just, you're not getting the proper recovery, you're not getting the proper sleep, the nutrition, all those other things you get injured. And then what do you do? You spend time out of the gym and you lose all those gains you fought so hard to get. So being just consistent, like you said, like do, do things that you like doing so that you know you're going to go maybe throwing things every once in a while that you don't like so much just to kind of break up that pattern and, you know, and break outside the comfort zone a little bit. But yeah, yeah. that consistency is so key in, in setting those pathways for yourself that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to keep with those routines. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, it's the idea where our, with proper nutrition, proper rest, relaxation, sleep, and then volunteer exercise, those are like the, those are the hacks. I think mm -hmm. that's the other part kind of what we're talking about neurohacking before. Yeah. And if there was a pill or a drug to take that gave you superhuman <laughs> performance, we would be looking at it and we probably would have something similar to that now, right? The, the other big joke is in our science is we're really good at taking brains out. We can't put them back in. Right. right? And so, you know, we could, we could do all these amazing things, but it, it's, it's, it's difficult in terms of, you know, for, for humans, we have a skull, this giant bone structure surrounds, surrounds our brains. And then for the pharmacological aspect, we have this blood brain barrier. And so when you take a drug, usually we're taking drugs through our mouth, right. Or injecting them, they still have to pass through the blood brain barrier. And so it's this really incredible, uh, natural evolutionary thing to keep your brain isolated on purpose. And the other part with neuroscience is really particular is, uh, it's, it's when and where, Mm. Right. So you have to give the right stimulation or decrease something occurring, uh, you know, neurons firing in a certain area of the brain to potentially increase the performance. But all the techniques we have now are exterior. Right. So uh, Elon Musk, the Neuralink, those kind of groups that are fascinating, but also terrifying at the same time where yes, they're they are. putting those <laughs> electrodes down into your brain. Right. We can do incredible things with animals. When we do that. The, the problem is there's some pretty severe side effects, i.e. you're dropping cables into your brain even when they're super tiny. Because as we know too, through neuroscience, that even a really, you know, like a millimeter cubed might be considered a super important area for certain structure for certain types of behavior or processes take place that, you know, disrupting that might have profound, uh, potentially profound implications. Um, so yeah, that's, that's also pretty wild. But yeah, I, I think about that because everybody's like, well, how do I decrease my, how do I, how do I turn, people ask me, how do I turn off my amygdala? And amygdala is the, the small part of your brain. You know, you've got two, if you basically go and put your, your fingers right in front of your ears and then right kind of above your nose and shoot it back there, there's this, uh, the limbic system is this kind of nice 
curved system and it's got these two little they look like peas basically or the amygdala you can google all this right so you can see a visual of it uh, that sit inside your brain that that kind of fire all the time and what they're telling your brain and you're telling your body is am i in trouble am i danger am i in danger now or not am i safe am i in danger the more danger you get the the, the more of an amygdala response that you will have and it's one of those people want to, well how do i turn that off well you don't want to turn it off because that's what keeps you alive right so it keeps right. you looking around and saying am i okay what I, what I like to describe to people is if you ever get a chance, watch a squirrel in the wild, right? Like look out your window if you have squirrels in your area and just watch what a squirrel does all the time. They'll run around a little bit, they'll start eating. And they're also every once in a while, like multiple times a minute, they're just stopping and checking. Right, looking right? around. What's they're looking around, <laughs> exactly. They, they become prey fairly easily, whereas we you know, ideally are apex predators. But the idea too of just that's an appropriate amygdala response is just to check. Right, like, and right. that's what we kind of talked about at the beginning, right? This is the physiology associated, the neuroscience associated with how are you doing? What's your what's your assessment right now? And it's very clear, you know, when you're having an overwhelming amygdala response, we usually call those near death experiences, and a lot of it too gets into the fact of can you control that situation or not? Right. And so that's where, when it's an uncontrolled situation, that's where we see, uh, unfortunately, we get a lot of those deleterious or really negative effects like PTSD or other right. um, other physio where you've been pushed outside your physiological barrier so far. The system essentially has reset itself, but not back to baselines, back to a, a non-normal baseline. Unfortunately, and that's that's really tough. Um, right. Whereas if you can control, or the cool thing with humans is we can tell ourselves we can control situation, or we can glimmer uh, very. I'll use this example. I think you know it's nothing too crazy, but it's like you know you learn through seer what are things that you can do to control your situation, right? Mm -hmm. Part of part of that that school and training uh, gives you those tips and tidbits. And I would argue, I don't know if they, I don't think they describe it like this, but it's essentially you're learning how to, even though you're having an overwhelming amygdala response, you still have the perception of control, even though you're right. in a really horrible situation, mm -hmm. right? And that's something where we as humans are really good at doing. Uh, well, you practice it. I think that goes back right. to the training. Right. right. How do you how do you recognize that this is going south? What are things you can do? And it still might be going south. But at least you're doing everything you can <laughs> right. to mitigate the situation. That's kind um, of the part of the stoic mindset, right? It's not so much that I want to ignore my feelings or what's going on in my, in my body, but it's like keeping that ring of control over, you know, over myself. That like, you know, I, I have the I have the ability to decide you know, whether I'm gonna, you know, when to act and how to act and that kind yep. of thing. And like, kind of keep that everything around you is caught chaos, but you're that you're focusing on mental clarity and that's that sense of like calm and stillness within the self. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's the keeping yourself goes right back to controlling your breathing. Mm -hmm. No matter what's happening, ideally, you can always control your breathing. It's right. Theoretically, it's possible. It makes somebody can't control breathing. But most of the time, I'd say 90 percent of the time you can control your breathing and that's something even falling back on that is extremely powerful um mm -hmm. yeah it's again it sounds so easy to do except for when you're in that near-death experience or stuff is going very sideways to say am i breathing right <laughs> and that's right. the part where hopefully you've practiced it along the way uh I, I get to go mountain biking often and sometimes they get a little bit over my head or I get to the places where it's, it's more of a challenging place that I really want it to be. And I'm happy because I don't think about this anymore, but I've practiced enough to where I just start breathing a technique that works for me to make sure I'm getting oxygen in and also right. dumping it back out right. in ideally a rhythmic way. And I usually have some random song that I'm singing as I'm doing it um, in my head to keep my breath going. But it, it's, it's one of those where if you practice it, it becomes 
the idea of it becomes a secondary task, not the primary task you're working on. For me, it would be mountain biking and not crashing. The secondary <laughs> task is you know breathing appropriately. Right. So that's a that's a great example. That's uh, when I work with people that are you know more on the uh, athlete level. When it talked about like endurance athletes, you know, mountain yeah. biking, triathletes, runners, and stuff like that. That that breathing piece is so huge, obviously, because you're doing long duration cardiovascular. But a lot of people on the super, especially on the amateur level they lose that. They're not even thinking about their breathing. They're just, <sighs> and it's like, if you, if you start to train and like you said, turning that into that secondary thing that's going on in the background, a little more control, a little bit, a little bit more efficiency. And when you yeah. talk about miles, right. A little bit of efficiency adds up when you're, when you're talking about hours of doing work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, this is the idea of keeping that within the physiological spectrum of, you know, we could go and do a super hyper output for a short period of time, but it's not sustainable. Right. And so that's kind of the idea, you know, I've gotten to work with a few, uh, not many, many, but a few endurance athletes that are, it's really fun. And it's kind of this idea where, you know, everybody has a plateau and a peak, mm-hmm. like Michael Phelps has a peak, right? World's best athletes. We all have a plateau you get to. I think you mentioned the consistency. The idea is how do you stay at the peak performance for that long? Mm-hmm. Right. And so in stress, uh, there's this, you know, beautiful curve. It's older, you know, it's discovered a long time ago in psychology, but um, it's stress and performance. Like Yuki's Dodson law, you can Google that. It's basically yeah. an inverted U, right, shape, and performance is on the y-axis that goes up and down. Stress goes on the x-axis, so from left to right, right to left. Everyone look at the graph. Both arrows are opposing each other, and you want to try and stay in that sweet spot where you're stressed enough to have increased performance. But if you get too stressed, your performance decreases. And if you're not stressed enough, I like to say you're probably sleeping or just like super groggy, your performance decreases. But as humans, we are really good at getting overstressed, right? right? And that's the downside is the world we live in now surrounded by technology is a vastly different world than where we were 10,000 years ago when we had this other major technology revolution of going from being uh, migratory species that would follow you know, game and the seasons to a sedentary to developed agriculture. And so we, we're, you know, we're stuck with these 10,000 year old, essentially physiological systems, yet we have beautifully designed food, right? It's easy to get. We don't have to run around and chase food all the time. So we're sitting down doing zoom calls all the time. And so it's just a different existence now. And how do we think about, I like to think about, you know, explain, how do we think about optimizing your system, your body, your performance is how would you do it? If you thought about doing it 10,000 years ago, right? right. And, and technology clearly has way more benefits, I believe, than hindrances. But how do you optimize those, right? How do you use it for, uh, for good and not for evil? Or how do you use it to maximize, exceed, and help to perform at your peak level um, versus not? And that's right. where keeping that balance is important. Awesome, dude. Uh, well, in keeping with uh, just that word, the word right there, balance, which is really what the podcast is all about, uh, when you hear the term warrior monk, like what does that make you think of? Uh, how would you define it? Yeah. So I thought about this one a lot and I probably went down too many rabbit holes and then I kind of came back, started breathing, started breathing again. And I was like, okay, in my mind, when I hear warrior monk, I think about those individuals that have the student mentality to like a, a, like a lifelong learner, right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the monk side and the warrior side, I think is something where, um, a lot of people say they're warriors and I'm not going to say that they're probably they're not, but in my mind, a warrior is an individual male or female who clearly understand practices and performs violence of action when needed. 
right? In my mind, that's somebody that says, I'm willing to take this action to resolve a situation or to, you know, make something, eliminate a threat, you know, take down what I need to take down and understanding what force is necessary to do that. I think a lot of people think they do, but either they don't do it, they don't practice it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's something where even in culture, historically, there just weren't that many warriors walking, like true warriors walking around. And I think probably the same as today. Um, and it gets it gets hyper glamorified through Hollywood and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. But it's a messy, it's a messy, very uh, intimate piece of survival. And so in my mind, a warrior monk is somebody that truly appreciates and practices violence. And I say that very humbly, right? Growing up doing combat sports myself, I hunt. Um, you know, taking a life is a very serious consequence. Did it in research, um, but somebody who's really good at it and who practices it. And when I say good at it, who means it's ethical and who recognizes that this is a very monumentous moment each time that kind of bleeds to the monk side as well, right? Of understanding and appreciating and knowing uh, that it's okay in certain circumstances for that to occur and you sleep well at night, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the part too. And so in my mind, I think a lot of times, again, it gets hyper glamified of the idea of warrior monk is this like super over the top, you know, just veined out dude. He's got his biceps bursting and then he goes and like, relaxes by a river for a few minutes. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, I, I think about it much more in terms of describing it as a, I'll just use my friends as examples, right? I have friends that do these incredible jobs and you ask them what they do and they just say, they just nod and walk away if you have to ask them what their job is, right? right. But they hunt bad guys for a living. Mm -hmm. They are really, really good at it. Really good at it. And in addition to that, they're also great with my kids, meaning right. they know how to behave and perform and have a good time in the present moment that they're in. And they practice that they, they are actively thinking about how do I optimize my performance for both sides of the spectrum, you know, helping humanity in terms of applying violence necessary, but also helping humanity through education and training. And, you know, how do I make my community better? How do I make myself better? How do I leave this world better than when I came into it? Mm -hmm. That type of mentality. And again, there, it's a very select group of individuals who are able to practice that and to do it in in reality. Um, so I, it, it, for me, it's a very humbling, uh, humbling title to give in terms of, you know, I think we talk about a lot, but it, it, it's also a path, right? You never, it, you don't win while you're monk, you don't win buds, nope. you don't win golf, you don't beat it, <laughs> you practice it for life, right? I think that's right. something too, where, you know, recognizing that it's a lifelong journey, and you probably won't ever, you know, there's no badge. <laughs> it's like you, you, you passed, you win it. Yep. Um, it's, it's something that goes on and you always get better and you always recognize places to improve. And that's, that's kind of goes with both sides of the monk side and the lawyer side. So. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I, a little tangent. I, no. awesome, <laughs> I definitely man. thought about that was a great question. And it was, it was for me as, personally is the idea of, you know, I don't get asked this very often, but I think it's a applicable for this audience is, you know, how do I sleep at night? You know, knowing I did animal research. Right. And it's like, I sleep very well at night because this, the animals that I use in my experiments are going to help us today. Our war fighters who are literally downrange right now today, my brother, the police officers on the streets, keeping them safe, who has to maybe apply violence if necessary uh, and make decisions under extreme stress. Mm. You know, that's, you know, kind of going towards that larger good. And yeah, it's a big deal uh, doing that portion of it. So. Absolutely. That's awesome. So next question is, uh, Who's influencing you or who are you following right now? And this could be, you know, personal relationship, uh, someone in the research field, uh, someone you're reading, anything of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. So 
again, I, I thought a lot about <laughs> this is the downside of be, being me in terms of, you know, the, as my wife likes to describe it, you know, don't, don't lose yourself in your own head. That's the, the joking <laughs> trade of a PhD is sure. we could just sit there and overthink something <laughs> for far too long and be like, oh, ah, I need to order dinner. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking about it. And so kind of on two fronts, right? The one front is on the academic side. There is so much profound, exciting research coming out now. Um, and it's it's more accessible today than it ever has been. Absolutely. It's and great. so I, I'm not going to say like, because I'll miss so many people, but it's like, if you have an interest in something, right, you can go to Google Scholar and type in, just start your search with like the words that you know. And then all of a sudden there's there's a pretty delineated path where it's like, I want to learn more about the amygdala and the fear response. You can go to Google Scholar, type in amygdala fear response, and you can look at papers based on their number of citations and say, oh, this one from the 1960s or 70s or 80s is influencing the field because it has 15,000 citations. Start reading with that one. And then you can kind of go and learn. And as you do that process, you get to learn more and more and more about that. You know, you realize quickly, like my, my PhD was advisor was great, Dr. Cliff Summers in terms of our, he talks about this moment that he had at a conference where he went to this massive conference. There was like 300 rows of like 100 posters each and they switch over morning and night, right? So it's this, this vast amount of knowledge that comes out in right. Society for Neuroscience Conference. It's, it's incredible. And he goes, I went to the first or second day and I came back to my hotel. He goes, I sat in my bed and I had my hands, my head in my hands. And I started crying because I knew I would never learn it all, right? right? And so it's this moment where like recognizing you're never going to learn it all, but we have access to information we've never had before. And so you know, I find myself delving down areas which previously would have been like, oh, that's interesting. I don't have anybody I could talk to about that or to figure it out. Where now it's all the information is at our fingertips. And so for individuals that, you know, what's influencing me, it's the access to technology like that, right? Where I can say, how do I, how do I get these two things to connect together? Is that even possible? Has anybody done that yet? Uh, and then, you know, for the technical neuroscience side is what's next? What's coming new? What's, what's the extension on kind of areas that people have people have researched a little bit, but how do you take those big ideas and pull them out to apply them in there? Um, so that's kind of on the, on the research, the academic side is, again, there's so many thousands and thousands of really good papers out there. It's just picking yeah. each one, but having access to things like Google Scholar is fantastic because the history on that is previously, those were all paywalled. You had to, uh, you had to submit your academic article to a journal and the journal would take it unless you had a subscription through usually your library yeah. and your academic library, you couldn't get that paper. So that didn't happen to me during my PhD process where I was like, I need to read this paper to get the citations and I have to do an interlibrary loan that's going to take six weeks to have this paper, which if it's electronic, they can't just send me a PDF that day. I got the same print. thing as an undergraduate. I remember. It's so mind boggling <laughs> yet that still happens. But at least today you can at least for the most part, get the abstracts. So you can kind of a gist. The other part too is this is a tip or trick. If you can get the abstract, you can get the corresponding author listed. Right. And that person has to list their email address. And I can tell you, it's <laughs> really direct. fun. Yeah, it, literally, these people, all we all check our email, right? Yeah, so you can right. always email somebody um, or find them on LinkedIn. I mean, it, the world is a lot smaller. So that, that's influencing me right now. The other thing I think is fun is watching individuals um, kind of emerge from uh, areas that they had these really incredible careers and pivoting them. And I'll use uh, Jack Carr, the Navy CEO, is now the best-selling New York Times thriller author as an example. I think it's really fun because, again, from my perspective, the general public, civilians, you know, they don't have a clue or a concept of what it takes to do these types of warrior monk jobs, 
careers, right? Mm -hmm. And so getting a small glimpse in that that's not totally Hollywooded out. I mean, there's clearly it's a thriller, so it's meant to be a good patron, which they are. Um, but being able to kind of have a glimpse into that, I think is really, really powerful. And it kind of uh, sheds a little bit of light on the difficulties associated with jobs like that, but also the rewards that come with it too, right? Like the, the bonds individuals have with your brothers in arms that you go into combat with is unparalleled. I mean, yeah. I, the closest thing I can, having not having that experience myself, closest thing I can say is, you know, going on a pretty extreme hunting trip with, you know, a good hunting buddy, knowing that, you know, something goes south, he's my only, <laughs> he's my only help. And yeah. I trust him with, literally trust him with my life. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, I think being able to kind of have those stories come out a little bit is really powerful as well. Absolutely. That's, that's great, man. I appreciate your, your insight and, and your take on one kind of what's going on behind, behind your, uh, your skull and what's bouncing around your brain. Cause I know there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Justin, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, you know, if they want to know more about tactical neuroscience and get LinkedIn, uh, maybe they will something related to their job, uh, whether from the tactical community or not, uh, how can they follow you? How can they get regular kind of neuroscience updates or get in touch with you uh, about more learning opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. And so easiest way is, uh, tacticalneuro.com. That's the website. Go there. There's a contact form. You can send a, uh, contact me, you know, fill out the form or write a small email there. Either myself or somebody else will get back to you very quickly. Then we'll we can certainly start the conversation that way. Um, check that all the time, clearly. Uh, so tacticalneuro.com. And then on Instagram, tactical neuroscience. Uh, and what I get, I have some good close friends that are in the community and they're like, you don't post anything about tactical neuroscience. You just put like cool pictures up. I was like, yeah, because it's hard to say, let me show you a picture of stress. <laughs> right? It's like just an angry, sweaty, red face. And it's like, nobody wants to see that, but that's a platform where I kind of put up or, you know, have some uh, small tidbits, I would say, show up there occasionally. It's more just a, a kind of a holding pattern place of, you know, a way to get a hold of me, a pathway and communications line. Um, sure. But really I want people to know that I'm here as a resource for you. Right. And so if you are in a group or an individual or uh, in the occupation where extreme stress is a portion of your life and you're looking to enhance that or understand, I mean, we talked about really the super surface level stuff here. And so I'm uh, always happy to have more in-depth conversations and uh, I'm always open to making connections and, and chatting basically and seeing if we can find, find a connection there. And if not, worst case scenario, we're at least on each other's radar and continue the conversations we go down the road. Um, it's a small community. I think that's what's so fun as we discussed, you know, kind of previously, once you know a few people, it's like, oh, <laughs> there's only so many warrior monks walking around. And, <laughs> it's and, right. and they, they most of the time usually know one another. And it's a really, it's a really powerful community. And I'm, I'm just appreciative to be able to help in the smallest way possible. So. Absolutely, man. Well, that, that's great. I, again, I thank you so much for your time today and I appreciate you joining me and uh, we'll stay in touch. I'm looking forward to more stuff coming from you in the future. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, thanks again to Justin for joining me on the Warrior Monk podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm hoping maybe we can do another one at some point in the future and even get a little bit further down the rabbit hole into the nerdy neuroscience stuff. But if you're interested in checking out what Justin is up to, go check him out on Instagram at Tactical Neuroscience or over on his website at Tactical Neuro. Dot com. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on the Word Monk podcast. I really appreciate you returning to check out more content as it's been coming. And as we continue on here in the coming weeks where there's going to be more content related to neuroscience, to uh, mental health, 
related to psychology, decision making, dealing with stress in life, and uh, just all around being a balanced person, growing through balance. That's what it's all about here on the Worry Monk Podcast. Please look out for that content coming soon and continue to grow through balance. Seek it out, guys. This is Lance signing out.